Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Josh Marshall podcast, we have a kind of a return to equilibrium on a few fronts right now. Uh, you know, last night we, we had a, a kind of a smattering of primary elections last night. There was one in Wyoming, one in Alaska, not states that we normally think of as like kind of like national barn burners, um, but through uh, kind of weird idiosyncrasies in this cycle, they they do kind of turn out to be. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, Liz Cheney obviously went down to defeat. Um, that was the most uh, predicted defeat in like ever. Uh, although, you know, when you have things like Kansas happen in these races that are kind of quirky, right, where you have a race, it's not a it's not a basic Republican Democrat race in a state where, you know, pollsters have a good grasp of how elections work uh, in Kansas. Again, that was a unique contest for a lot of different reasons. So it was a little hard to poll and there weren't that many polls. Um, so to me, at least, there was always I kind of thought there. I, I did not. I certainly did not expect Liz Cheney to uh, win that primary contest. But I thought there was an outside chance that, like, she, you know, she might do better than people thought, or something like that. Obviously, that did not happen. She went down to defeat, as uh, as uh, expected. And you have the uh, the the attempted return to politics of Sarah Palin. You know, blast from the past. Um, you know, kind of kind of a. a in, in some ways, kind of the John the John the Baptist, female John the Baptist of crazy, right? Kind of anticipates so many uh, current players, and as often happens in those cases, uh, her you know ideological and um, you know affective progeny. She can't necessarily compete with them. They they outdo her at the you know at her. At her game, so we're going to talk about those two things. Another interesting thing that is happening right now is, you know, I, I've been sort of uh, banging this drum for a couple months that either the the Democrats' prospects in the midterm elections were better than they were being than was being suggested, or that there were things that Democrats could do to improve their standing and. Something that we have seen over the last month or so, there has been kind of a sea change in expectations about about the outcome of the midterm election. I would say is it is now the consensus opinion that 
Democrats are likely to maintain their control of the Senate and possibly even add a seat or two in the Senate. Uh, obviously, those are, you know, we're still three months out. A lot can happen. But it's very, it's, it's, it's very different from the expectation, even at the beginning of the summer, which was basically that the Democrats were going to get crushed across the board in the House and the Senate. And, you know, almost there was kind of like no hope, like, you know, maybe just you know, find a different hobby than politics or, or something, right? Or find a different country or something like that. Um, but that is that has that set of expectations has changed pretty dramatically. And um, you know, the thing that I always follow as kind of the canonical metric is the generic ballot. That's the that is the poll question where with slightly different permutations they ask you know, all things being equal, either would you like the Democrats or Republicans to control Congress next cycle, or all things being equal, do you plan on voting for a, de- you know, do you plan on voting for a Democrat or a Republican when you vote for House or, you know, some, some version like that. And um, that has moved three or three plus points over the last couple months, give or take, uh, from Republicans being ahead, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of two and a half to three points to now the Democrats being ahead about half a point. Now, if we think about single polls, those are obviously very small differences, right? Well within like the margin of error or whatever, you know, mar- lot, there, there are different margins besides margins of errors that we know. When you're talking though about averages of, of dozens of polls and, and tens or hundreds of thousands of respondents, then those numbers become pretty significant. So there's been that change. So we've moved away from the red wave narrative. And now... I think we're kind of like, well, okay, there's no red wave, but Republicans still are in a, a, you know, a better position than Democrats, certainly for the House. Um, And so you're in this kind of like liminal space now where there's been a big move, but how big a move is it going to be? Is it really going to be enough? I mean, it seems like it's going to be enough. I'm fairly confident that 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 Democrats are going to hold the Senate. Um, we're going to talk about some of those races in in a in a few moments. The House is a is is a different thing. A lot of uh, ingrained advantages. Although you know, even there, there was um, you know, I what was it? It was it in uh, you probably know Kate. There was a like a special election or a primary, I can't remember. I think it was in Minnesota, um, a contest. I think it was last week. And it basically one of these races where I think that, I think the Democrat lost, but it was one of these kind of bellwetherish constituencies. And the Democrats just sort of overperformed for no particular good reason. And that gave a lot of prognosticators kind of pause, like maybe this idea that, you know, the Republicans have the wind at their back, even if a little less than we thought a couple months ago, maybe that's just wrong. Maybe, you know, maybe that's just not the case. So we're going to talk about those things. Um, these sort of equilibriums resetting in, we'll probably even get to a little bit of, a, you know, a totally different kind of equilibrium, which as we have seen in the past, that we have somewhat got, gotten over the initial shock of the fact that uh, the former president's home or, you know, I mean, it's it, it's very, tri- if you think about it, 
we haven't talked about enough. It is very Trump that Trump gives out, sells high dollar memberships to his house. Who does that, right? Like most of us, like we do, uh, got a lot of money making angles, but like giving memberships to our house is not one of them. Uh, In any case, we've sort of gotten over the shock of the fact that there was this, you know, raid and search. And now it's kind of as 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 so often with Trump, it's become okay. Yeah, I mean, he you know his house got raided, and now we're kind of you know the, the Republicans are coming up with their excuses and this that and the other. So we're going to talk about all those things, uh, but before we do, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. If you can't handle the heat, get back to the kitchen because with a glass of Grady's New Orleans style cold brew in your hand, you'll be ready to tackle whatever sweaty situations pop up this summer. If your previous attempts at cold brewing were messy bitter or bland don't worry grady's makes cold brew consistent easy and mess free their beanbag cold brew kit provides everything you need to make the perfect cup of iced coffee at home and there's no need to buy any special coffee gadgets you can brew right inside the grady's store and pour pouch and enjoy tasty iced coffee all summer long summer proof your fridge today at grady'scoldbrew.com you can use promo code tpm to save 25 percent off that's grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm okay so, uh, co-host Kate Riga, what are, what's going on? So let's start with, uh, Liz Cheney's defeat, as you say, pretty much the most predictable, uh, that we've had of late, you know, they did, her campaign kind of did this half-hearted thing of like asking Democrats in the state to switch their registration so they could vote for her in the primary. And there is some, you know, evidence from the state numbers that thousands of people did that, right. um, you know, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't really expected to be enough. She's, you know, getting clobbered. I mean, she didn't even really campaign in a way that would suggest that she thought her candidacy had any real shot. You know, she wasn't spending that much time in Wyoming um, because of the preponderance of death threats she's received. She wasn't even really holding public events. (laughs) That's really chilling. Yeah. Really chilling. Exactly. Um, So they ultimately, you know, the networks and AP kind of called the race all about like an hour and 20 minutes after the polls closed yesterday, she came out and did the concession speech, like even before AP had called it, you know, clearly not really waiting with bated breath. Um, And then in the speech, mixed in some kind of tantalizing, I may run in 2024 nuggets, did some of the, her kind of classic, I will do anything to keep Trump from being in the Oval Office. You know, there are things bigger than holding onto your house seat, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. you know, and then we get our <laughs> our flurry of pieces, headlined variations of, you know, Cheney's house career is over. What's next kind of thing. Um, but one thing that's funny that I kind of found out about while I was writing our pre-write is that I didn't know very much about the woman she's, is who beat her, who's going to take the scene on now, Harriet Hageman, this um, lawyer who kind of got the Trump endorsement and, and has gone full MAGA. But interestingly, she was among the Republicans kind of fighting Trump's ascendancy in 2016 and was brainstorming ways to kind of have a a live vote on the floor of the convention to take away his nomination. Prior to that, she'd worked as an advisor on Cheney's kind of short-lived 2014 Senate campaign. So it does add a layer of almost like literary depth to this race that you have these two women who took 
literally the exact inverse path in their politics. You know, Cheney supported Trump in 2016. She didn't really have her change of heart until the insurrection. And then meanwhile, you have Hageman, who was fighting Trump's ascendancy and then was like, well, you know, that's no way to win a statewide seat. So she had a a change of heart and then off they split. Now I knew that I knew that she had been you know anti-Trump in the past, and it it it's one of those things. It's sort of uh, there's something very revealing about Trump that being you know uh, hardcore a- against Trump in the past is is no is no obstacle. Nope. As long as you make you know as as long as you pledge total fealty, you're good to go. And in a way that other sort of more normal politicians, if you really went against them in the past, you're never coming back. You know, you might, you know, you may kind of make up in a way, but you're never going to be tight, right? That's never going to happen. And we've seen again and again, uh, I, I don't think it's something positive. I mean, in some ways, since everybody started off against him, he kind of can't, you know, <laughs> he's, he's got to, he's got to take what he can get, but it's, it, there's a little, is more than that. Right. I mean, you've got like Lindsey Graham, who was the one in 2016, just the absolute anti-Trump, you know, what they, you know, he has that, that, that famous line, you know, if, if we, if we buy into Trump, we will be destroyed and will deserve to be destroyed. Uh, So there is this, um, there's something there. And I think at some level it is, you know, he, he, turns on everybody, then unturns on everybody. So I think in part, he doesn't, to him, I think through his prism, what you say is just what seemed to work for you at that given moment. I don't think he really thinks that you ever thought it, right? Or or unthought it or thought anything. Everything's transactional. Everything's mutable. So, you know, if you are, if you are making a blood pledge, you know, come on board. It's all good. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's such a profound reflection of his own idea of loyalty. You know, he doesn't get kind of offended at this idea that people were once railing against him because he has no intention of maintaining lifelong loyalty to anyone. So, yeah. you know, that's just not even like the framework within which he operates. Yeah, um, no, it's it's revealing at a number of at a number of levels. I mean, one so here here's a question. So she hinted 2024, presumably mm-hmm. a presidential run. Mm-hmm. Now, I saw a number of people saying, well, you know, is she really going to, you know, be a spoiler, third party, blah 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 blah, if she's really trying to kind of prevent Trump. I, I didn't I didn't see that that particular part of the speech, but I at least interpreted that as you run in the primary. That makes total sense to me. I mean, she can get the money. There's no question she can get the money. I mean, she may get it all from Democrats, but she can get the money to run, right? And and I suspect, you know, there's plenty of Republican money out there. There may not be Republican voters, but there are, you know, Republicans of a sort, blah, 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 blah. And that, um, you know, we don't know what that primary battle is going to be like. We don't even know if there's going to be a primary battle, really. Um, you know, we kind of talk about that and DeSantis and this person and that person. But as with everything in 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 Trump world, it's that's all or nothing. Like you're you're gonna go there. You are gonna you're not gonna enter that race unless you were there to beat Trump and really run him out of politics for good. Right? The guy's almost eighty. He's not gonna like come back in a decade for a, you know 
after being out of office for a while. So this is it. And, and it's all or nothing. So I think if you, um, you know, if you're a DeSantis or maybe some other kind of, uh, kind of space, you know, like a Nikki Haley type, you and you go, you run in a primary where Trump is running. Your calculus is either I win or I'm done. I'm do, I'm done in the Republican Party, or at least, you know, maybe not. Maybe maybe I don't have to win, but he has to lose, right? Like if you're Nikki Haley, you're like, okay, maybe DeSantis wins and and I'm his vice presidential candidate or something like that. But Trump wins, you're done. You are done, and so. But assuming that primary happens, that would, um, you know, what, what if she's on every debate stage? Not just kind of, you know, doing DeSantis-like criticisms, like you didn't, you know, you, you, were, you were too much of a softy with, uh, with Tony Fauci, of kind of saying, look, this guy tried to overthrow the government. I still think that's a problem. I mean, that is something she could really be a thorn in his side. And I, I can't, I, I don't, um, you know, maybe she'd run as a third. I have, you know, I have no idea. But the primary thing seems like the obvious thing. Totally. To I've seen a lot of people kind of reacting on Twitter and being like, she's just going to siphon off votes from the Democrat. But I can, I totally agree with you. Like, that's a pretty elementary calculation that I'm sure she and the pro Cheney camp have made. You know, I had the same sense that. If primaries are allowed in the Republican right. Party, which is right. not a given, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone's under the delusion that a Cheney candidacy would suddenly split the MAGA diehards. But I absolutely think there's something to be gained by forcing him and DeSantis and whatever kind of proto-Trumps there are to have to share share space with a voice of someone who's like reasonable and responsible and won't let them just kind of squiggle away from the harms they've done, you know. And at the very least, like you say, even if she ends up, you know, winning 2% of the vote and, and not hurting him at all, at least she'll be there as like an omnipresent fact check. And like you say, taking some resources. And that's a real thing because there are a lot of like super rich Republicans who are not on the Trump train. Yeah, totally. totally. And, and, and the way that uh, the way, the, you know, the way the campaign finance system works these days, you just have like three rich guys, you know, cover the whole cover, the, <laughs> right. cover the whole budget, basically. And, you know, I, I do think um, I would not be surprised if she could consistently get five to 10 percent. Of the primary vote, yeah. I mean, obviously that's not enough to, to to win anything. In a lot of states, it's not even enough to get any any um, delegates because there's a strong, you know, kind of winner take all uh, uh, element to the way that the way that things are structured. But she will clearly have the non-Trump thing a hundred percent to her, a hundred percent. She'll probably have some independence. Uh, you know, there are obviously there are a lot of states where independents can can vote in a Republican primary. Uh, New Hampshire is is a good example of that. Um, so it would not be surprising to me if she can actually get a significant uh, percentage of the vote, just because it's not like there are zero anti-Trump Republicans. They're just not. You know, they're they're just in an extreme minority. But in a if it's anything like a normal presidential primary, you start out with like seven or eight people and like 10, 15% maybe is a lot, is a lot. Um, totally. So, yeah. Well, and I, I just 
think the idea in and of itself is powerful. The idea that you would have someone kind of like telling the truth within the Republican bubble, just because that is something that we found. And not just the bubble, the stage. Yeah, exactly. On the stage. Yeah, yeah. Because we've found just like mainstream media is like ill-equipped to handle Trump. Like we've seen that over and over and over again. And so kind of counting on her to be constantly reminding people of January 6th versus counting on, you know, the New York Times to kind of not write a Trump-friendly framed story just feels like a safer bet for everyone involved. Well, yeah. And and just to, to state the obvious that a primary run is all damage to Trump, no, you know, kind of playing with fire at the general election. And running in the general election is all zero danger to Trump and all playing with fire, right? So the, exactly. the calculus is, 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 is completely night and day. Um, if I were her, like, you know, why not? Why, exactly. I mean, what, what else does she have better to do, frankly? And, and you know, because she, uh, look, you know, there's all this stuff about, oh, you say she's so great now, but like she was for the Iraq war and she was, okay, yes, 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 yes. But, you know, I give her credit, right? And, and, and a lot of people give her credit and I'm sure she doesn't mind getting the credit. So who wouldn't want to, you know, kind of like milk that credit for at least a couple more years. Like what, what better thing does she, and you know, the thing is with Trump, so, so much of Trumpism is all or nothing. And so much of the optics of Trump are everybody bowing down to him. You know, we got very used to, uh, during Trump, he had all those people point out to me that bill signings are a little the same, but we had that constant visual Trump sitting behind the desk and everybody else, not just like, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the champion Boy Scouts who are there to meet the president, but, but big important people standing, standing behind him while he spoke. That's just, there's an optics to that. And uh, so much of, you know, the way he does press conferences or just anything, the idea of like Trump is up there on a stage with someone who is like telling him to fuck himself, basically, is just, we have not seen that. That is not something that he can really uh, uh, manage. And in some ways, that's, you know, that, that's why the, um, the 2020 setup was, was really kind of all or nothing, right? And, 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 and if anything, none of them, they all kind of knew where things were going and they were all sort of at war with themselves in terms of like, you know, I'm going to be the one who takes down Trump, but like every, all, all of our voters like Trump. So how am I going to, I can't like disrespect him or w- right. whatever. So that's totally. my sense of that. Yeah. And, and as to the point you made about like, she supported the, the Iraq war, like she's this like intensely, intensely conservative politician. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it doesn't have to be a hagiography, you know, it's like, that's our weird take towards politicians that like the same thing. I remember this so clearly was happening with Cassidy Hutchinson when she testified and like, I don't know, like the Jennifer Rubens of the world were kind of being like, oh, what an incredibly admirable, like heroic, blah, 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 blah. And it's just like multiple things can be true about someone at the same time, you know, and like you can just kind of abhor all of Liz Cheney's politics and also acknowledge that she is incredibly courageous and this about this singularly important issue and willing to toss away, you know, her current political career for it without also doing the whole like Bill Crystal thing of like, 
a Cheney Buddha judge ticket. Mm, what do we think about that? <laughs> well, it's also there's, you know, as part of that whole discourse, there's also this thing you see Republicans saying this a lot now, and they, we've seen in other contexts like, oh, you know, they love Liz Cheney now, but you watch her run for something, they will turn on her and beat her up. And it's like, just like they did McCain, just like they did Romney. Well, first of all, there's so much mythologizing there because like Democrats really were not mean to McCain or even to Romney. They, they, they said he was, they said Romney was a rich out of touch guy and he is a rich out of touch guy. I mean, that's politics, right? But, but like, as you said, there's no contradiction of saying great admiration for what she's doing now. She holds political views that I strongly disagree with. So if and when she was running in a race against a Democrat, I would oppose her. I would say her positions are terrible. There's nothing contradictory about that at all, at all. There's nothing, nothing, and nothing, and nothing. And I would say to the people who say like, oh, you know, yeah, you love her now. What, you know, what about the Iraq war? What about this? What about that? Well, you know, it's some things are just much more important than other things. They're in a different, they're in a different plane of importance. And as many people have argued in, in similar contexts over the last year, the integrity of the state itself and the democratic process itself is at a different level of importance than all the different policy disagreements, even though they are profoundly important in themselves. And you can't take that, you know, it's sort of like, you know, like, oh, you know, he's remarkably healthy, except for the cancer. Right. I mean, there's you know, certain things are just in a different category. Right. There's, there's no except. It's a big thing. So, you know, it's just I feel like we all understand each other. She is she is on the right side of this. This is kind of the issue of the day. And, you know, I think we all understand each other. Yeah. OK, so let's talk about the other big races of last night, which took place in Alaska. Uh, we can start with the Senate level where Murkowski is the first of the Senate seven who voted to convict Trump during the second impeachment to face a primary. And interestingly, you know, her situation was totally different than Cheney's solely because in 2020, Alaskans in a ballot referendum decided to kind of institute a new voting method for their elections, which entails in the primaries, top four candidates from any party go on to the general. And then in the general, you do rank choice voting to determine the winner. So yesterday was just the primary, not a lot of drama. You know, Murkowski was like almost certain to get through. Her real challenge will come in the general when she's running against this like former land commissioner in Alaska who's got the Trump endorsement, who's gone big lie, you know, all of, I guess, what a traditional Republican now is. Well, like um, the Hegeman woman. And it's very, exactly. you know, he always finds these mid-tier, you know, someone who was such and such commissioner or this mm -hmm. or that and the other, you know, it's almost like he's dangling like a little piece of candy. Yeah. Who's going to, who's going to grab it. Right. So yeah. One of those people. Yep. Exactly. And you know, interestingly, the ranked choice might end up helping Murkowski a lot, too, because, you know, so not only did the system let her avoid kind of a head to head with this far right person in the primary, which, you know, would have been dangerous because primaries almost always attract a more extreme segment of the politician, a more kind of intensely partisan segment. And in this case, you know, would have 
been more conservative than the general election body. But then when we get to the general and have their rank choice, the Democrat is like not really a serious contender, basically a former educator who was going to run for some state level seat. And then the Alaska Democratic Party was like, nope. We need you for this one. So uh, and she hasn't really fundraised or anything. So she'll be knocked out of ranked choice fairly quickly. Um, and then Team Murkowski is kind of banking on Murkowski is, you know, really the only one of the only kind of genuinely moderate lawmakers we have left who does cross the aisle and who's crossed it on some very high profile things. So, you know, she's maintained, I think, a fairly good relationship with Democrats in the state. So she can probably safely expect to scoop up some of those second or third place votes as people get eliminated. Um, and, you know, that, that might be enough to see her through. She's proven before to be a pretty formidable campaigner based on the 2010 when she got knocked out of the primaries by a Tea Party candidate and won with a write-in campaign. I still Which find that shocking. Which is completely, completely unheard of. I yeah. mean, I'm not even... I mean, it's so hard. I mean, everybody... <laughs> We talk so much about the various ways that politicians make voting hard, you know, kind of make it complicated, make you got to do this, you got to bring ID, all the kind of things. In this case, the person isn't even on the ballot. You've got to you've got to remind everybody, actually, the choices you have, don't choose any of them. And here's a weird name. I mean, you, know, you have to it's, spell it's, right. <laughs> yeah, you have to spell right. As it happens, it's a very, you know, it's a political dynasty in in mm-hmm. uh, in Alaska. Um, but it was a huge, you know, and that this is the thing with, you know, Wyoming is, you know, just everybody's a Republican, basically. Mm-hmm. And you and and among Republicans, they tend to be all extreme. <laughs> you know, now there's there's extreme and extreme, you know, they 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 range from like, you know, Liz Cheney to uh, people in armed compounds. But so that's Wyoming. But Alaska is very strange. On the one hand, it has always been a solidly Republican state. It's one of the mo- one of the most solidly Republican states in the country. I think I just I was I was reading some article about these races last night and noticed that um, Biden got over 40 percent in 2020. Mm-hmm. And that was like the highest a Democrat has gotten since I think like 1968. So I mean, he's not an incumbent. Yeah. Well, well, for presidential. Yeah. Only or, Obama or, the second time. Oh, God. Okay. So, well. oh, okay. Yeah. Well, what in any case, so the point is, is that it just shows you like, you know, it is it is a thoroughly Republican state. And yet and yet, you know, it's it's, you know, thoroughly Republican, most thoroughly Republican states send back extremely conservative senators. Murkowski is obviously not an extremely conservative senator. And the the earlier senators were not extremely, you know, Ted Stevens, you know, he had a lot of, you know, you get into Ted, Ted Stevens and Murkowski's father, who she kind of inherited the Senate seat from, both of them at this point kind of from different political eras, but not neither ideologues. I mean, some mm-hmm. of that is because Alaska is extremely dependent on federal largesse, right? On on if you want to call it pork or whatever, it's an undeveloped area. Um, so that is part of it. But the ideology is weird too. You do have Democrats who have won there as recently as Mark Baggage, uh, who what I think he lost in twenty fourteen. Maybe I can't remember exactly when. In any case, they've had Democratic senators relatively recently, and you've got a lot of Democrats. And the kind of the character of Republicanism there is not like, you know, kind of evangelical stuff. Mm -hmm. It's more kind of like, 
you know, I, I've got my cabin and my shotgun and don't t- don't talk to me kind of, <laughs> kind of republicanism, <laughs> which which is, you know, I, I, I just it is it is a very libertarian kind of republicanism, which in a national context can go in various different directions. Um, one thing I mean, the other thing about it is. As as TPM alum, uh, alum alum Eric Kleefeld likes to point out, it is they essentially have state socialism there. They they you know they've got this system where uh, they sell all the oil and everybody gets cut a check each year. Literally, literally, they have they have public ownership. I mean, it's 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 a little more complicated with the licenses and stuff like that. But everybody in the state gets cut a check each year and not like for 10 bucks like for real money you know for you know given given it is kind of like an outback kind of state where if you want to you can you know kind of go uh i was going to say go feral you know kind of just live off the land there are people who just live on those checks right so it's a, it, it it's it's a weird state it can it's it's republican democratic thing is um you know it's different from from the re- the rest of the country. Yeah, I think that's totally true and is interesting because it adds a layer of question marks I think to this like very intriguing idea that rejiggering elections like this, doing ranked choice and you know top 2 or top 4 I think pretty clearly has the potential to defang this trend of super, super extreme right person in the primary knocking out someone with any sense of moderation and then, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. going on to the general because just by virtue of the fact that you got more people moving through in the primary, it's not a one to one. And then a lot of people have argued for ranked choice with the thinking that it, you know, boosts moderation, that it gets people... Uh, to be less kind of ideologically coalesced behind one person, all that kind of stuff. And I, while I think that's like a super intriguing idea, I do think what you just said tempers our ability to draw that conclusion, you know, kind of just from Alaska, just because right. it, Trump, like you said, it's just Trump's grip there is not as strong as it is on other red states. And they do have this kind of like independent streak and it's an idiosyncratic place. So it's hard to very, draw that conclusion. Very. But I do think it's it's an interesting kind of test case. And it'll be interesting as we see more elections in this model, because so far we've only had, I think Maine is the only other one that's done their their Senate races ranked choice. So we don't have well, a big saw, pool of data yet. I think I saw my friend uh, Amy Walter, who runs the Cook Political Report now. Um, I, I think I saw her say on on. Twitter uh, this morning, and, and if I'm getting this wrong, it's not Amy's fault, it's my fault, that the two, the two impeachment Republicans who've made it mm-hmm. at least so far were both in ranked choice or either ranked choice or jungle primary, you know, the non-traditional right. yeah. setups. And that, so that is kind of, it's, you know, it's funny. I mean, there's, um, and there's, so there's, there you know, there's two there's two things and they kind of have some relationship to each other. There's there's the jungle primary model where the primary is just everybody runs mm-hmm. in one big race and the top two go on to the general. And often in California, 
that ends up being you have two Democrats running against each other. Um, in Republican states, th- the opposite ranked choice is obviously a little more complex, but it has some similar dynamics in what it can, you know, it, it does, it does the current setup, you know, giving advantage to moderates or moderation is, it's a very loaded term. What is it? What does that mm-hmm. mean exactly? Right. Um, but you do have this thing, this, this setup where, um, in up until very recent, and some of that has to do with just idiosyncrasies within New York politics. But it's basically like I didn't really have a vote because, like, we're all Democrats in the state, and so kind of politics, in a way, kind of ceases. Electoral politics ceases to happen. I mean, it's an extreme case, and it's not directly relevant to this. But you know, when I vote in New York State, I got kind of used to the fact that you know you go down through like. Congressperson, city council, you know, blah, 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 all the different things. Um, none of them are really contested because, again, we're all Democrats and someone someone's the incumbent and they're going to win, right? Um, and then you have like, you know, judicial races. And at least where I live in Manhattan, you'd have this thing where kind of like, all right, here are six, uh, you know, the six people running for this judge thing. And I, you know, I don't even know quite what they're what they're judges of. And you, you know, pick your favorite six. <laughs> literally, literally. We're literally there's no there you there's you have six choices and you pick six. There's no one even running against, right? So so democratic politics does kind of break down in our model when you have this kind of polarization. And to the extent it it creates some um, you know, creates some some flexibility and continuation of electoral politics, even when, you know, people in a state tend to be Republican or tend to be Democratic, that's, that's a positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea, too, because you mentioned the two House data points we have on the impeachment front. Um, what's interesting to me about that is like those two who, of course, I'm forgetting their names off the top, but they were just I think one. Valdio, or yeah, something. Yes, that's definitely one, one of them, and yeah, I can't remember the other. But I mean, this kind of speaks to what I was going to say, which is that they are not the most memorable of the body that kind of took this big stand. You know, I'm sure if you kind of did the data out about who got the most media attention of this group, obviously you've got Cheney, and then you've got like Kinzinger, kind of people that everyone knows did this. And I do wonder, you know, that's another kind of diluting factor that makes me still kind of be intrigued, but we need more data for this point is just, I do think there part of this is like, if Trump hasn't made these specific people a, a huge enemy that he goes after all the time, they just become a little less tarred by that brush than people like Cheney, who it's become her whole political persona, you know? Right. I mean, although, you know, it, I, over the last six months, you know, he, I keep seeing him popping up. We're like, oh, another one of them went down. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, kind of like where I'm like, oh, I didn't know there's a primary, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I wasn't even paying attention. So he, but he's paying attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 you know, the Cheney thing is, I, I've never known how to pronounce that guy's name. Is it Major, the guy who went down a week oh, or two ago yeah. in Michigan? Who, you know, the, the, the one who got a lot of attention over Democrats amplifying you know, mm-hmm. crazies, all that kind of stuff. One of the things about Cheney is, you know, pretty much all those other people, they voted for impeachment. 
which again was pretty soon after Jan 6, right? But most of them voted for that. And then they're back to kind of like, oh, Jan 6 committee, fuck that, man. No, no, no more Russia, Russia, Russia. You know, so basically they didn't disavow their impeachment vote in the cases at least I'm familiar with, but they, they went out of their way not to, not to talk about it and voted in ways subsequent to that to really try to get back in everybody's good graces. You know, really, really try. And, you know, Liz Cheney, I mean, she's literally, I mean, she's not running it. And I think even Dem- there's a lot of Democrats, who re- you know, over the last few months been saying, wow, you know, we got to learn from Dick, uh, uh, Liz Cheney. She's up there kind of showing how it's done. Well, I, I give her plenty of credit, but that that's by design. The Democrats up there, the people running that committee, they all realize that it is good for them to have mm-hmm. a Republican leading the charge. But, you know, she is, you know, nonstop just being like nationally prominent and just like bashing Trump like crazy. Yeah. So like she's all in and these others were not all in with with and, and like, you know. Kinzinger was kind of all in and he dropped out because obviously he was not going to that. That's just not um, that is not that's not plausible in the GOP today. But to the back to the ring, I mean, the the problem in a lot of ways with. Our, you know, first past the post uh, structured two party system. And again, everybody talks about, oh, you know, the two party duopoly. It's not a two party the, the constitutional structure sort of forces that. Um, but even even within that, you do get in, in, in the present hyper-partisanized climate, you do get this thing where in a, in a red state, you are basically locked in to the decisions of the 30% of the reddest of the red group of people. Mm-hmm. So like in I think what you saw in like Kansas is a good example, although it was not a strictly speaking partisan election that you when it's just kind of like, OK, w- what do we all actually think here? Not does, you know, because you've got this set up where, you know, the, the, the low turnout electorate in a Republican primary determines who the Republican candidate is. And then the Republicans are going to vote for that person because they're not going to vote for the Democrat. But that's not really necessarily where the whole state GOP is. And right. it's certainly not where the whole state is. So you do get this kind of it's, – it's not even – I think even voting on saying it's you know people who are extreme is, is, is not so much the point. That a lot of people are just locked out of – in a sense, kind of structurally locked out of actual participation in electoral politics because of that structure because they don't really get a choice. Right. Totally. Even in a hyper-partisanized era, there are going to be some issues where some Republicans or some Democrats like, yeah, I agree with – I, you know, there's this slice of the people on the other side I kind of agree with. You saw that with abortion. Right. Where a lot of Republicans are like, you know, I'm very Republican. But on this, like, there's a lot of Democrats who I agree with. So let's just kind of, you know, let's, let, let's uh, have a kind of an ad hoc – Mm-hmm. you know, agreement on, on abortion. It changes things. So it's, it does seem like it's, 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 it, it is the next thing that you yeah. expect it to be, you know, to keep spreading around the country. Totally. Okay. So let's talk about the other Alaska race, which is actually races because Don Young, who was like the longest serving representative in the house, he died in March. So there has been a special election to fill the end of his term, you know, just the last few months. 
And then parallel, there is the race for the next full term for this seat. And both of those appeared side by side on the same ballot in Alaska last night. And the reason that this race has kind of attracted attention initially is, as you previewed in the intro, Josh, Sarah Palin is mounting this like kind of initially out of nowhere comeback bid. She hasn't held office for like a decade at this point. Um, And she stepped down from the governorship in 2009 to kind of go pursue other endeavors, such as the the one season reality show, Sarah Palin's Alaska. And and just to remind everybody, we don't mean she declined to run for re-election. She resigned in the middle of her (laughs) term, which is frankly bizarre. Who does that? Who's not unless you're going to be indicted or something like that. Right. So... Last night was the general election for filling the rest of the partial term. And the last three people in that race are Palin, um, Nick Bakage, who is in part of the family that you actually referenced earlier, who is like this big Democratic powerhouse. Is family. he related? I wasn't sure about he that. Is related, is he? Yeah. Okay, interesting. But I but guess he, dis- distantly related, maybe. Yeah. Not like from the primary. Well, I think he's. The grandson of Mark? Well, there's, okay, so there's Mark Sr., who's the guy who died in a plane crash like 50 years ago. Uh-huh. There's Mark Begich Jr., who is the guy who was senator for one term like uh, 10 years ago, something like that. I think I think mm-hmm. I have this right. And, and this guy, who I guess is, you know, maybe closer to your age than my age, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pretty young. I have no idea. I did. I didn't even. I, I have no right. idea whether they're related or not. So he is the grandson of the one who died in the plane crash. Interesting. Who held okay. the seat before, but not the son of the senator guy, who's the son of that guy. At least I think oh, must man. be another. We'll yeah, have to like sketch out of, and they all have the yeah. same friggin' names because of the naming your children after you thing. Yeah. But in any case, so he but he's is a, a Republican, Republican scion yeah. of this big Democratic family in Alaska. So those are your two Republicans. And then you've got um, Mary Peltola for the Democrats, who is a a former state rep. She would be the first um, Alaskan native to serve in the congressional delegation. So these are the final three. There was also Al Gross, who we might remember as running for Senate in 2020. Mm. And he's an independent. He was running with the Democrats. He became really interesting for like a second because it was the only race that wasn't, it was like the only outstanding race before we had the Georgia runoffs. And oh, there was some speculation okay. of like, could he pull off a wild card win? But he did right, not. Right, 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 right. And he okay. ended up dropping out of this general election for the partial term, I assume, because he didn't want to kind of weaken Peltola, who is the kind of, you know, doing better as the Democratic candidate. Right. So right. we've got these three. Um, and Palin and Bakich have just been going after each other to the almost complete exclusion of going after the Democrat at all. Um, now, is he is he putting himself as another Trumper or is he in some sense uh, ceding the Trump clone thing to Palin or how what is the basis of that? Well, because she's fully on the Trump train, like she's like got the the you know, the, the laying on of hand, I, I guess I shouldn't call it laying on of hands with Trump. It has, it has, <laughs> yeah. has, has a bad meaning, but you know, the, 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 the symbolic, uh, mm-hmm. anointing or whatever. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, he, interestingly, he like used to actually work for Don Young, um, but then kind of tried to shed that and like tack to the right. I mean, Palin has the Trump endorsement, um, but she's been kind of calling him, you know, rhino, blah, blah, blah. And he's been really hitting her on the like, she's a quitter. She left Alaska to go find fame and fortune. You know, right. that's kind of defined their stuff. And then the Democrat is just sitting there like, okay, you know, I'll just do my thing. And now, so the general for that was last night, that is ranked choice. And everyone pretty much expected the Democrat to be in first place after that initial tabulation, because the Republican votes are being split between the other two. But the thinking is because these two Republicans have basically run elections that are so stupid for ranked choice voting, like making each other radioactive for their voters. So basically making it making their voters not want to put the other Republican in second place. We are now facing a situation where there's a chance that the Democrat could just squeak through and win because they've riven the Republican voting body so starkly. And and just, just so we just to kind of take out the gist here, what you're saying is that most people expect that the Democrat will win outright this kind of last two or three months or four or five months or whatever of Don Young's term. That's kind of we're kind of assuming that the Democrat is more than likely to win that. But you're saying that in addition to that, this kind of quirk of ranked choice voting may allow her to win the next term, too, because the Republicans are so split. So not exactly. What I'm saying basically is that right now, the only ranked choice we have right now is for the partial term. In terms of the next full term, we're still only on the primary level, which is that top four candidates go through. Right. So we're going to have a redux of this whole thing in November when we get to the general for the full term. But in terms of the partial term, this is what people had their eye on as potentially the Democrat cleaning up thanks to the stupid Republican campaigning. And I would not, I don't think anyone thinks that the Democrat is like a shoe in. I think most people there's, you know, Alaska is notoriously difficult to poll and this is like one house seat special election. So there's been basically nothing, but I think oddsmakers kind of thought that Begich would probably win because Palin has made herself so radioactive to Alaskans and has basically spent no time campaigning in the state on top of all these accusations of, you know, her hightailing it out of there when it became right. kind of convenient for her political fortunes. Um, right. But, you know, now we're just facing a potential world where people thought that if Begich comes in third and is the one who kind of gets kicked off in ranked choice voting and then his second place votes are redistributed. That might end up helping the Democrat because people really don't like Palin. And well, even even apart from ranked choice voting, if if I mean, it's not that, you know, there are Democrats in Alaska. So Mm -hmm. if 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 Palin and Begich are splitting the Republican vote, isn't it possible that the Democrat would get the most, you know, would, you know, get like 39 or 38% of the vote and that's the most, she would win on first, you know, uh, the, win the plurality on the first round voting? Yeah, but you have to exceed 50% to win outright before they start doing redistribution of the last person's votes. Okay, got it. Got okay. And she's so, unlikely to hit that high of a threshold. Right. Okay, so... And then it's it's you, one has to assume that a lot of the Republicans put her second choice 
Yeah, I mean, they hate that the would just person. be a really funny end result of these Republicans running a pretty dumb campaign against each other. Right. right and it's interesting right. because also the DCCC has just not invested in her race at all. And she's, you know, she's mad about it. Like she described it to the Washington Post as, you know, a bizarre decision. But you can also see a world where like, the D trip might be kind of keeping their powder dry and not wanting to go all in on like a partial term race. And yeah, might there's be kind waiting. of there's. I mean, I guess the 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 candidate's point would be, you know, both are happening at the same time, so there's no distinction. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that you can hive it off, there is no point in that. Why would they invest right. in you know a you know there are they're in the, they're not going to not be in the majority for you know before 2023. Um, you know, the one thing that is that is worth raising here um, is that Don Young, the state has one representative and Don Young was that representative for almost the entire history of the state. I believe he, I believe he was in for more than 50 years. Um, so he uh, was probably elected for the first time in the very early seventies or maybe even earlier than that. I, I don't know precisely. But remember, uh, I believe Alaska became a state in 1959. So like, <laughs> they've only, in practice, they've only ever had one member of the House, and that was Don Young. So like, there's just no press, you know, we have no idea how that, you know, um, you know, we can figure it sort of, you know, like in like in a lot of small states, it probably has similar dynamic to how the, the, the Senate contest runs. Uh, but again, it is worth noting that the place has had one representative for its entire history. I'm actually going to, I'm kind of curious wh- um, when he was, and you know, Don Young is uh, also a, a an, another good um, kind of example of a Republican and in some ways very conservative, but less conservative than just weird. <laughs> and like cantankerous and, uh, you know, very focused on getting uh, spending for his state. And, you know, people call that pork. But again, you've got a state out in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic. It needs a lot of federal support. Um, I looked here and it seems like he was first elected in 1972. And notably, and this is, all right, this is where it comes full circle. Who was he uh, preceded by? He was preceded by Nick Begich. There we go. The guy who died in the plane crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, who was, there was someone else who, uh, who wait, it was, um, wait, is it, there was someone, I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, Ted Stevens died in a plane crash. Right. I mean, it's they've got this thing where they use planes as kind of like cars. Right. And it's it's they crash. You tiny little planes going around. Who was it? There was that other guy. Was it uh, Bo- Hale Boggs? Oh, yeah. Um, that Hale Boggs, who was this, you know, kind of uh, the House majority leader from Louisiana, who um, I got him. I'm sort of winging it here, uh, I believe was Cokie Roberts' brother. Do I have that right? Or maybe maybe, maybe it's one generation off. They're all from the Boggs family, this big Louisiana political family. He was also killed in that crash. So um, you have, let me just kind of bring it full, wait, in office. Oh, I guess, wait, who? 
I, he didn't have it the whole time. He was actually, he was only in office for like one year. And then before him was this guy, Howard Pollack. Um, I guess they actually had a decent amount, you know, in that one pre-Don Young decade, they had a <laughs> lot of turnover. turnover. Yeah, well, because they had they had Begich. And then I went to the guy before him who was who was named Howard Pollack. Uh, this is real-time research here. Uh, he only goes back to 19... It was elected in 1966. And then you have Ralph Rivers, a Democrat. Maybe he's the only... Maybe this is the only... Or I wow, guess uh, Begich was the Democrat. Um, he was the first guy and he was actually um you know how like you know they've got a a a sort of a delegate from dc kind of, he was even the delegate when it was still a territory even though i've i've obviously gone pretty far down the rabbit hole so, <laughs> out here, Kate, bring, so now as back. we scramble out of yeah. the rabbit hole yeah. let's do a yeah. quick pass around um this report that the Republican campaign arm is basically like pulling back in some pretty key states from the Senate point of view. And the the article mentioned Pennsylvania and Arizona and Wisconsin. And Josh, I know you did like an ed blog about this. So what did you see about the kind of particulars about, uh, you know, that reporting and, and what can we conclude from it? Well, you have uh, the NRSC, the Republican Senate campaign committee who is you know sort of the top strategic arm of of doing this stuff they um when you run these committees you got you have to uh, reserve time in advance you know uh, television ad time in advance and they went into those three states and pulled out a lot of their ad buys um now some of this can get mixed up with how the campaign finance system works. Some kinds of committees can do completely unregulated spending. Some does more regulated. Some of them are these joint committees where the committee can spend a lot, but they need the campaign to spend, you know, to pick up a certain percentage. So there's all these different factors going on. And of course, the campaign committee say, oh, no, 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 this is just, you know, kind of bookkeeping. We're going to put all that back and blah, 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 blah. There seem to be a few different things happening. One is that, uh, you know, Herschel Walker and Matt, Matt Oz are both doing terribly in fundraising and they don't have enough money in some cases to join these hybrid, uh, you know, hybrid buys. But I think the big thing is that like certainly in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and Arizona, it really looks like the Republican candidates are toast. You know, we're told this is like a Republican wave year, and they're both consistently 10 points behind the Democrat. And the Democrat in both cases is just over 50%. So as often happens, you if you're in charge of electing as many Republicans as possible, you look at it at a certain point, you're like, those those guys are toast. We have to, you know, we're not going to spend good money after bad. Um, and you have... So it's a mix. We don't know exactly. And there's an element, you know, there's the there's the potential for wishful thinking for Democrats here to think that they're really kind of cutting off these candidates. I don't think they're cutting off these candidates, but they're retrenching with those with those candidates. Because, again, in those two cases, again, when you're 10 points behind, that's bad. That's really bad. Um, And uh, in 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 that case, now, Wisconsin is much less clear to me. 
I expect that to be a very hard fought um, race. There's there's very little good polling so far because because the uh, the Democrat was only chosen, and even after that person's chosen, when you have a when you have a, a, a primary battle, you need to, you need the kind of the, the hard feelings to kind of shake out there, and the other party to kind of coalesce. And Don jo- uh, Don Johnson, Ron Johnson, uh, whatever you can say about him, he is demonstrably. A great electoral politician. There's no question. No one expected him to um, beat Russ Feingold. No one expected him to beat him on the rematch. He beat him both times. The guy is a very canny politician. Um, but they seem to have pulled back from there a bit too, which that surprised me. Uh, and I think the broader context here is that kind of semi out of the glare of the national media, the a uh, candidate in North Carolina is basically tied with the Republican. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that's a state that, you know, is a Republican-leaning state. Uh, Democrats have had their hearts broken there on Senate races a lot recently. So I'm not saying that that she's going to win. Um, I'm forgetting the candidate's last name. Beasley, um, right? Beasley, Sherry Beasley. Um, I'm not saying she's going to win. When you're tied like that, you've got to, the Republicans need to fight for that. And bizarrely, you've got polls out of Florida now that show a real race between Val Demings and Marco Rubio. Now, again, Florida, the ultimate broken heart state for, for, for Democrats. Um, but when you have races that are looked to be tied in the polls, you've got to, you've got to spend to defend those seats. So I think big picture what we see here is Republicans getting a sense of the lay of the land in the late summer, seeing that a number of states they thought were pickups are looking like a real challenge and other states they thought were basically in hand, they're going to have to fight to defend and they're moving money, you know, in line with that, you know, thinking. Yeah, no, totally. And to add, just to add one case to that also, I mean, in Ohio, the 538 uh, kind of amalgamation of all the polls has Tim Bryan up like 4.5 points on J.D. Vance. I mean, talk about a state that like Republicans expect that to fall into their category, you know. And and, and that is an example that that is not, um, you know, Kate is not talking about one poll there. With that, that state has been polled a lot over the last two months, and Ryan has consistently been either tied or ahead of JD Vance. Like it, it's, it, there's a lot of polling data there, and you know neither is an incumbent, but it's a Republican state. So you know when you've got you know so the Republican is in a sense the incumbent because it's a Republican state, uh, and that. I don't know what to think there exactly because like right now I'm looking at the poll average that 538 has. Remember that's that's Nate Silver's site. Um and it has it's basically Vance 41, Ryan 46 or actually 45.8. Now, that looks pretty good to me. I really like how that looks. And I will say this, as much as Tim Ryan has annoyed a lot of Democrats across the country over the last 20 years, I literally think there is no one in Ohio who is better positioned to win as a Democrat in that state. He's the perfect candidate for that state. Um, 
doesn't mean he's going to win, but he's the perfect candidate and he's running a great campaign. Now, when I look at that, those numbers from an adverse point of view, what I see there is that you've got a good dozen, dozen percent of the electorate uncommitted. And when you have that, that leaves a lot of space for partisan muscle memory to kick in to people saying, you know, ah, I think Vance is an idiot, but look, it's I'm a Republican and it's controlled the Senate. So you have to figure there's a lot of the undecideds are going to break against Ryan. But that's but again, that's sort of the devil's advocate position. The, the main thing is like, what the fuck? How, how is it possible that, that, that the Democrat is not only in this race, but is actually like opening up a not a huge, but a significant and, and seemingly persistent lead, you know? Totally. I mean, it's Ohio. It's not, it's not, I don't even, I don't think people would even really consider Ohio like a, a purple state anymore, you know? It, I mean, it's pretty consistently just been going Republican in all, you know, recent cycles. Yeah, no, and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny that the, the, certainly as recently as like, 2004 and 2008, Democrats were still in, you know, that's a Democratic, that's still a Democratic state. Yep. And no one was saying it was a Democratic state. It, it has been, for more than a century, it has been a, a kind of a classic bellwether, right? There's even that statistic, like, you know, only a few presidents have won the presidency without winning Ohio, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it is a relatively, there is something that has happened basically over the last decade, especially in the Trump era, where Ohio has gone from being a bellwether to, you know, Democrats saying we're not on a bad streak. It, like, it's a Republican state now, yeah. and it's trending in a Republican direction. And um, the one thing I would say is that, uh, I mean, there's two, there's two dynamics here. Part of it is, this is what I mean by if you're going to run anybody, you run Tim Ryan. Because he's got, you know, he's, he's, I think he's from Youngstown. I think that's the, 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 um, the district he's from. He's, uh, you know, kind of rooted in union politics, you know, industrial labor union politics in, in that city, a kind of an older version of the Democratic Party, basically. But culturally, he's got that thing. And that's native to him. Right. Um, and, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying Republicans saying, oh, he's running as a Trumper. Well, not really. That kind of like male union, you know, good old boy thing that precedes Trumpism. That's not Trump didn't invent that. A lot of um, a lot of Ohio, the Ohio Democratic Party comes out of that kind of thing originally. So Ryan has always kind of been from that place politically. He's also bring he's also running heavily on choice, which sort of shows you the evolution of choice politics in totally. in, in, in 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 recent years. Um, and and you know, but also um, you know, Sherrod Brown one re-election. I, I think he was up in 2018. I can't remember exactly. So there's still, there's still a lane for those kind of, I mean, Jared Brown's a very different kind of uh, politician, but there's that lane. But here's, here's the other thing, and this is, will we'll hopefully justify this very long-winded answer. Um, J.D. Vance, here's the thing with J.D. Vance. A lot of, a lot of people now look back on the, you know, Obama-Romney era and say, you know, 
it wasn't the Democrat. It wasn't the Democrats were doing as well as you think. It was that Republicans ran this kind of out of touch Richie as their guy, and Democrats were able to kind of run against him as an out of touch Richie. Right now, for better or worse, we know that Trump can just come at that from a different angle. He comes from a very different cultural politics. I think the best case scenario and the worst case scenario for Republicans here is that Vance, even though I think Mitt Romney is a much better person than J.D. Vance, they're kind of playing into that Romney thing here. He is an out-of-touch Richie who left Ohio, you know, does all the kind of, you know, private equity sending your jobs overseas kind of thing. And that, so he is, as much as Ryan is sort of the perfect Democrat to run in that state, that Vance has, it may turn out to have vulnerabilities kind of on the Romney line that people did not quite figure in here. But who knows? Did you see that one picture that his campaign tweeted, I think, I think last week, maybe early this week of like, you know, it was just the candidate sitting down having some meetings, but he was in this like lavishly decorated parlor that had like a chandelier in the shot. And it's just, it's almost along the lines of like that video of Oz that's gone viral this week of him shopping for the world's weirdest, you know, quote unquote crudite, which is like, does someone on your campaign hate you? Like who let this see the light of day? It's it. I did not see that, but it does seem um, uh, does seem very par for the course. I mean, as we know, as he has spent most of his life, public life, telling us, uh, Vance came from a working class sort of uh, you know troubled working class background, um, but clearly he has shed that skin as an adult, right? Um, and so. Yeah, he's not going to be like kind of like working the phones in his mobile home, right? Of course not, because he's a rich guy and he's yeah. like Peter Thiel's best bud. So and and it's 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 kind of one of these things where um, you uh, it's hard. It can be very hard for a candidate to manage that because on the one hand, yeah, you don't want to be there. um you know, in your drawing room with your chandelier and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, you don't want to do what, what, you know, Oz did and literally be there like, kind of like, ah, I'm here, here in my, uh, my mobile home. Hey, honey, kick the air conditioner. It's too loud. <laughs> you know, cause then you're going to just seem like a, like you're, you're just full of it and an idiot. So it, it, it's hard if you're trying to, and it, it you know, certain politicians are able to basically say, yeah, I'm really rich. I've been really successful. And uh, now I want to kind of, you know, they all say some version of now I want to give back. I, I want to kind of help improve this country. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm, I am, I am rich. I've done very well. And, you know, if you can do that, but the, it, it's a hard, um, it can be a hard balance to strike particularly if you're JD Vance it would seem or, yeah. or Matt Matt Oz. Exactly. And one other and god I'm 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 just I'm endless here and I apologize to everybody. One final point. And this is this is there uh someone was saying something recently about oh you know celebrity candidates hurting republicans. It's not only celebrity candidates it's more tr- it's more candidates Trump picked. But one 
thing about that that is that is real. Running for office is not easy. You don't want to do it the first time as a senator. When you when when you're a big national race, it takes practice. And some people, as we've seen, are naturals. Most people are not naturals. And I do think that is kind of what you're seeing here with JD Vance and Met Matt O's, that it's not that easy. It, it, it takes some practice and they do not have practice. And they're, they are, um, you know, they're heading out onto the ice rink on their first time on skates, basically. Yeah. Okay. So let's do a real quick kind of just give us a little update corner on what's happened with Rita Lago since we last checked in last week. Yeah, I think I, we, we yeah. got the warrant, right? Uh, we got the warrant. We got the inventory. Yep. Which and and critically, those are things that the target of the search gets on day one. Mm-hmm. There's some extreme, very rare exceptions to that, but those are kind of you or you're entitled to. So those are the things that Trump could have released on his own on day one, and the, and then the judge um, ordered those released. I think Trump actually did leak them like you know half hour before they were released. And, yeah, and leaked the names of the FBI agents yeah, who carried yeah. out the, the exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and now the judge is deciding whether to release the affidavit. And the affidavit is really that when you go to the judge and ask for the warrant, the affidavit is where the real story is. Here's what we are trying to do. Here's what we're trying to prove. Here's why we think it's really serious. So it really kind of gives you the, the narrative with a lot of the juice. Um, and I think the... The government is basically saying, dude, no way. It's going to, you're going to blow up our case. Um, you're going to tell Trump what we're, you know, what our strategy is. You're going to out our witnesses. Don't do it. And I think the the assumption, the pretty strong assumption is that the judge will either refuse to do it or will do it with so many redactions that it kind of is meaningless. Um, and that is sort of where it is. And you've had a, a sort of a cavalcade of different uh, you know, excuses, rationales from Trump, you know, standing order, uh, double secret declassification, uh, you know, kind of everything under the sun. And that's just kind of where it is now. So is there any kind of concrete next step we're waiting for? It sounds like, you know, if we get the affidavit in any form, it's not going to be super, you know, revelatory. So what are we just kind of in limbo until more of a case develops or... I think that is basically right. Um, you know, there's always the chance that reporters will will you know reveal more aspects of what is going on. Um, but in terms of the legal process, I think that the government seems to have what it wants, and um, either and and I don't think there's there's not a next step until. They decide to do something, and that could. I'm not sure there's a lot that that would be besides an indictment or not an indictment. And 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 one other kind of part of this is that there's sort of there are still kind of two theories of what is ha- of what happened here. One is that this search was basically primarily about proving a crime you know, or, or an investigation pointing in that direction. Or the other was just like the stuff was so sensitive, they had to get it back right away. And, and, that, and that 
trying to indict anyone was secondary and maybe not something they've really ever have focused on or, or are likely to do. It's just that they could not, you know, they absolutely could not leave the stuff there. So it's quite possible, or it's at least there's one reasonable theory of this, that this was just to kind of protect some very secret information and indicting the president has uh, never been in the cards. So I think we could we could remain in limbo uh, for quite some time because obviously as as one I think as we all know, if the idea is here to indict the president for a crime, you are going to want to get that thing as like tied up as absolutely as tight as possible. You don't want to, you know, the whole thing, you, you strike the king, you kill him. You don't, you know, you don't end up with some kind of like dangling threads that he's able to um, wriggle his way out of. And, and as much as um, a prosecutor should kind of, you know, uh, call the case on its merits, this is inherently political um, in the sense that you really don't want to, if you were going to bring a serious criminal charge against a former president you want the you want the case to be strong enough where no one can reasonably say you're just playing politics they don't have to agree that he should be convicted but it has to be kind of like okay this is really serious you you kind of had to act so i i don't i think i think this is i think this specifically is going to hang out there for a while but it's also true there was like 20 other investigations of Trump so it's entirely possible that that one or more of them will 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 pop up with something like you know in the near future right all right all right well uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's cold brew iced coffee uh, go to gradyscoldbrew.com uh, get 25% off with your promo code TPM all right we'll see you next week later the Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.